0: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML.
1: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today on the show, Unifor says GM is in for a hell of a fight. The Canada post-strike may be close to ending, but that doesn't mean the problems have been solved. And over 3,000 Canadian veterans are still waiting for their disability claims to be looked at. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. It was about 24 hours ago that we uh, told you the story about the uh, imminent closure which was confirmed later on yesterday morning that uh, the Oshawa plant is going to be shut down. Obviously there has been pushback from the Canadian government, from the Ontario government, uh, certainly from the union. Uh, Jerry Dias, the head of Unifor, which is the union responsible for the United Auto Workers, previous United Auto Workers, uh, spoke to the workers, and uh, he was outraged. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Anil Verma, who is the Director for the Centre of Industrial Relations and HR Professor of Industrial Relations, HR Management at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Professor, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Good morning. Listen, there's, uh, the, uh, as we might expect this kind of reaction from, from the union, obviously, from Unifor, uh, even some of the government reaction from both the Premier and from the Prime Minister last night. But when when push comes to shove, when a, a corporate entity like General Motors like this makes a decision, is there anything at all that we can do to have them change their minds?
2: Well, I think so in, in the short run, yes. But uh, in the long run, uh, we've got to recognize the greater shifts that are taking place in the auto industry worldwide, and then particularly within General Motors. So there there's many layers to this story, and uh, just asking them to keep it open in the short run is uh, one of the third or fourth layers to my mind of thinking.
1: You know, if you want to look back over the last couple of months, uh, should we have seen this coming, Professor? I mean, we did know... Uh, a few months ago that Ford had already announced that they were pretty much giving up on sedans. They were going to phase out production of sedans and concentrate on trucks and SUVs. And they said that was based on what we the consumers were buying. Was it inevitable that General Motors was going to do the same thing?
2: Yeah, oh, absolutely. If you talk to the analysts in the uh, that follow auto industry, they've been talking about this for uh, 10, 20 years uh, this is not a new story that's been in the making for uh, decades. And um, what, what's really happening is that uh, the uh, gravity, center of gravity of manufacturing is shifting out of North America and more towards Asia, both in terms of manufacturing and the markets. So if you look at General Motors, at one time they used to make 80% of their cars in North America. Today, it's a third and going down. Uh, More than half of their production is in Asia now.
1: And why is that? Is it it cost of of production?
2: No, it's just that, you know, we have uh, consumer markets that are fairly mature. So our auto sales year over year are not growing. In fact, in the U.S., they are declining. People are buying fewer cars. Uh, thanks to public transit, thanks to, uh, you know, ride-sharing services like Uber, Lyft, et cetera. uh, People are not buying, uh, and they're also replacing their cars uh, um, uh, over a longer period. They're not buying as many cars. So uh, there's just a maturation of the market, whereas in Asia, markets can be growing 20, 30, 40, 50 percent a year. So uh, that's a newly industrializing uh, region of the world. There are new consumers, new purchasing power. So this shift was inevitable. But that is not to say that we won't make cars in North America. We will. It's just that the way we make it and the number of models that will be made would be far fewer than in the past. And we are really looking to a future of fewer, larger plants that are more automated. So I'm afraid that if we are looking for job growth, particularly in this industry, it's simply not there and we've known this for a while.
1: Professor, we've heard from auto industry uh, experts and some of the, the big three themselves uh, talking about th- their plans for the future and, and, and obviously the electric cars come into this, uh, autonomous vehicles come into this. Is, is there a market for that in North America or is the real market for that as you've just alluded to over in Asia?
2: Well, for the cars themselves, uh, I think there's a huge market, uh, both in North America and in Asia and worldwide. And so what we really need to do in a, in a place like Canada is to invest in new technologies. And we have made some small moves in that direction, but we are not a hub of innovation and, and new technology when it comes to electric cars. Uh, you know, GM makes an electric car, the GM bolts, mm-hmm. and you cannot hardly buy one in Toronto because their production is very, very restricted, and it's because they're still losing money on that car, so they make a few just to satisfy the regulators, but it's not commercially viable yet, but if it were to become commercially viable why then uh, a plant in Ontario could certainly make uh, a lot of these cars for Canadians and for others overseas.
1: So are we in a transition stage right now? I mean, there are some people that think this is the, the death knell for the Canadian auto industry. Is it, is it, is it really just a reboot? Uh,
2: yes, I, I would agree with you. I think it's a reboot in the sense that uh, the electric car is a completely different product. We don't have as many moving parts. We just have four motors that's controlled by a big computer. So what we need to invest in uh, is software, in um, in uh, electric uh, motor and control technology. So these are high-tech areas. And we have a hub in uh, Canada. We have several hubs that are very innovative and they are working on new technologies. I think what uh, our policymakers need to do is to Uh, gradually phase out of this old uh, technology the gas uh, engine and to begin to encourage car makers all over the world not just GM Ford you know that's the old story there are 25 other car manufacturers in the world today um, uh, from uh, China to Korea to India to um, uh, Brazil and all of those uh, manufacturers could be encouraged to come invest in uh,
1: Ontario what about the market, though, Professor? I mean, you know where the industry wants to go, and we certainly know where the government wants the industry to go. And and you're right, it's in it's into electric cars and of, of that ilk. But we, the consumers, uh, are, seem reticent to get involved in that. I mean, with, you know, here in North America, both Canada and certainly in the United States, uh, they're big countries. We drive a lot more. We drive greater distances, and and we feel pretty comfortable with the combustion engine, or at least a hybrid. Anyway, I don't know that we're ready to go all the way to electric cars.
2: Yeah, certainly we could be making, uh, there are other technologies, uh, for example, the the hybrid you spoke of, the hydrogen cell, so yes, um, uh, the demand for cars will not fade off anytime soon in Canada, we are a large country with a small population, so we have to drive, uh, it's just uh, the, the kind of car that we would be driving, and it's uh, uh, fuel efficiency, and not to forget that given carbon tax and global warming, uh, we need to move away from uh, polluting fuels to to cleaner fuels.
1: Well, absolutely. Unfortunately, the President of the United States doesn't seem to agree with that, but I think most other people that have studied this are are on that track, and and that's where we want to go, which is why the industry has pivoted, clearly, uh, because they see the future there. And uh, It just seems as if what they want to do and what the market is, is asking for right now seem to have a disconnect.
2: Yeah, I think that uh, we are caught in this transition. Um, uh, It's not just Oshawa. It's uh, also plants in Detroit and uh, other places. Uh, U.S. industry is also consolidating. So there are local communities hurting everywhere. And we've seen this in the steel industry uh, already. Uh, I mean, look at how many people made steel in Hamilton Mm -hmm. uh, 25 years ago and how many uh, make uh, steel today. So... So, um, you know, it, it, it's a transition that we have to uh, prepare for. And uh, in the interim, we've got to take care of workers to make sure that people who are losing their jobs, they have some help and transition. Uh, but certainly, Oshawa is not going back to employing 22,000 workers as it did in the
1: 1980s. No, the number that we've talked about uh, with the announcement yesterday is about 2,500, and as you mentioned, it was about 23,000 back in the 1980s uh, when that plant was in its heyday, I guess. And and for that, on intents and purposes, I mean, Oshawa was considered to be the automotive capital of Canada. I know there were plants in Windsor and Brampton and, and other places, but Oshawa seemed to be like ground zero for that. Uh, and that's changed. Uh, but what about the, the, res- the, the, the ripple effect when something like this happens, though? You, I think your point's well taken, Professor. What do we do? Uh, There's a human cost to this. There are people that have worked in that plant for quite some time. Now, all of a sudden, they, they have no jobs as of next year. Uh, what do we do with them? I mean, retraining comes to mind, but I mean, to what? Uh, to what purpose?
2: Well, some people uh, who are younger can certainly be retrained to move into uh, higher technology areas. There are lots of occupations. In fact, uh, every other uh, month I see a report uh, from the employers in Canada saying that they have so many jobs that are unfilled uh, because they cannot find qualified people. So uh, we are we are creating jobs. It's just that uh, we are not creating jobs that only need a high school diploma. We are creating jobs that need a uh, few years of college or vocational or some technical education. And uh, younger people can be moved in there. Um, for some older people, uh, they can be transitioned into retirement or into second careers so that they can draw a partial income from their pension plan, as well as uh, uh, supplementary income from a second job. Uh, So there are uh, transition strategies. And and certainly what the union is doing, and the government, I hope, uh, is to buy time, is to go back to GM and say, look, uh, we we see the handwriting on the wall, we see the message, but could you give us a a three-year or five-year transition period? during which we would be able to phase out uh, on a more orderly basis, and that can be negotiated.
1: You'd like to think that they're at least going to come to the table and listen, wouldn't you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And given that we have invested a lot in in this company, so going back to uh, 2009, there was a huge bailout, and um, uh, that was help provided by the taxpayer to these companies, and so I would think that if they want to do long-term business in Canada, that there is at least the goodwill that they should uh, attend to.
1: As we go through this transition, and, and I think you've just outlined where we want to be in a few years with different technologies and and. And hopefully the, the industry is going to pivot and be able to do that. Uh, what about the collateral damage? I mean, are we going to hear more bad news before we get to that point? Now, I'm, uh, what I'm thinking of here, Professor, is uh, is the spin-off jobs. I mean, we, we've talked about, I think it's 125,000 people working in the auto industry right now. That doesn't include, by the way, the people in the retail sector, you know, the dealerships. But there are about 700 other factories right now that make auto parts, and a number of them right here in the Hamilton, Toronto area. Uh, what 's their future I mean, as we move away from this technology, it sounds as if their their jobs are going to be redundant
2: yeah that 's true i in terms of bad news i 'm not sure how much more bad news we can we can take or we are going to get we 've already lost in the last uh, uh, twenty years uh, by some estimates at least uh, uh, two hundred thousand jobs in manufacturing in Canada, so uh, this has been um, going on for a while Uh, some old industries are fading out Uh, some operations are being automated and we've done reasonably well in the last 20 years in terms of making that transition Uh, I know that uh, there have been uh, uh, people hurting there are people who were caught in this transition Uh, so there has been a human cost but overall the Canadian economy has uh, has done well by global standards, Uh, or even compared to the U.S., uh, we did reasonably well through the financial downturn. And, of course, there for a while, the oil industry was the uh, one that uh, took up the slack from manufacturing to keep the national economy going, but that's not the case uh, today. So, you know, these things go in cycles. Some industries are up, some are down but um uh, the long term transition in manufacturing has been happening and in many sectors uh, i would say that uh, within manufacturing that canada has done well and that is to move our manufacturing to more high tech uh computer assisted manufacturing more precision parts rather than uh uh than uh, old fashioned casting or forging which we used to do in in the industrial era so um as we add more value there is a future for manufacturing. We just need more uh, skilled workers and we need new investments and we need uh, entrepreneurs who will bring innovations to
1: manufacturing. Don't you think though that our political leaders sometimes do us a disservice because they they characterize those job losses as jobs that are gone and, w- and you elect me and I'll bring those jobs back. Uh, those jobs aren't coming back. This is the automation and attrition. I mean, we need to, to look forward and say, okay, we need to retrain. We need to refocus right now. And we don't hear a whole lot of politicians talking about that.
2: Well, I, I don't listen to a lot of politicians, but certainly um, I would like to think that the planners in Ottawa and Queen's Park uh, are giving serious thought to this um, And there have been investments in the retraining system, but uh, we need a lot more. Canada is not a leader in investing in training and in skills. Uh, We do reasonably well, but uh, we could be benchmarking ourselves to the leaders in the world like Germany.
1: Uh, There's a template for us to follow, absolutely. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Great talking with you. That's Professor Anil Verma from uh, the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto.
0: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: The uh, strike is effectively over for Canada Post. Uh, The legislation was passed through the Senate last evening and has already received royal assent. As of noon today, the rotating strikes are supposed to end and everybody's supposed to go back to work. But if you think that's the end of the problems with Canada Post, think again uh there's still a lot going on obviously people are very upset about it being ordered back to work but over and above that uh there are some structural problems that uh, that are happening with canada post that uh, seem to be at the root of an awful lot of the problems that they've been facing and that we as the public have been facing uh and to that point there was a, a very poignant op-ed piece in the globe and mail yesterday even if back to work canada post is still plagued by deeper issues uh, it was written by ian lee Uh, from the Sprout School of Business at Carleton University. And Ian joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to explain that. Ian, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Uh, Great piece yesterday. I think it was uh, bang on. And uh, Essentially, well, I'll let you explain this, but I I get the sense from what you wrote here that one of the main problems with Canada Post is they're using a a 19th-century model for a 21st-century problem.
0: That's exactly, uh, that summarizes it very succinctly. The post office business model was developed literally in the uh, 1700s when it was set up by the British in what was called British North America and, uh, you know, the province of Upper and North Canada. I won't go into history, I promise. And and that model carried on after uh, Canada was created. In fact, one of the very first acts of the new Parliament of Canada in July of 1867 was the passage of the Post Office Department Act. No kidding, one of the earliest statutes of uh, of all. And that's how critical it was in those days because of course the post office in those days was the internet and social media and radio and television and telegraph and telephone and everything all rolled into one. There was no other communication system. It was it. Okay, let's fast forward. The what's happened uh, since the uh you know the internet of course and the browser in the mid 90s is that enabled the explosion of e-commerce and the essentially the digitization of anything informational. And I mean by that anything in a letter is information. Uh, a mortgage document, a lease, a will, uh, a legal contract. Um, how about a piece of music? How about a movie? They're being digitized and streamed through Netflix. So all of this digitization has killed the, uh, or radically reduced the amount of uh, letters being sent through the post office, which is their most profitable product line and their biggest product line. The good news for them is that uh, e-commerce has taken off, and so they're sending more and more parcels uh, than they did before, although they're less profitable per unit. But the point there where I'm going with this is the laws and the regulations and the rules were set up to create this monopoly post office, They're required that the mail go out five days a week, 52 weeks a year, to every address in Canada, without exception. Every business, every residential, currently over $16 But the e-commerce model, they don't go to your house unless they have something to take to your house. People say, well, I know that. Well, the whole post office is geared for the old 19th century model of taking it out to your house, or even twentieth, late to early twentieth century, taking the mail to your house five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year. That model is dying or almost dead, and we're it's, we're going towards a parcel model. But the problem is the policymakers, our politicians, have created barriers to the transformation. One is the law that says you the post office must go out five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year, to every address. Another is they declared a moratorium on the closing of rural post offices, 3,600
1: post offices. Why would they do that? And I, I understand why they're there in the first place. I mean, to go back to your example, yeah. but 1867 when that act passed, 85% of the population in this country lived in rural areas. Exactly. And it's exactly. the reverse now.
0: It's the exact reverse now. It's 85% live in the urban and the suburban. Well, they, the Khrushche administration passed that, I guess, under pressure from rural MPs and rural uh, constituents. The problem is that uh, this is straight out of the annual report, these numbers I'm quoting to you. Only 4.4% of all the addresses in Canada are in the rural now. The actual addresses delivered, according to Canada Post, only 4.4% are in the rural, but it, it represents 40% of the post offices, which are frightfully expensive. And- <laughs> And, and then, on top of that they the uh, the um the 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 wages um even though during the strike uh, W kept saying, "Oh we're paid less than the private sector, the Trudeau appointed task force that did a huge investigation in two thousand and sixteen and reported found it and they hired some uh, companies and they worked with internal data and on and on. anyways, long story short, what they found was is that these internal uh, and the, the workers at Canada post, both internal and uh, external who are deliverers, are paid significantly more than the private parcel companies. The, and I mean significantly 25, 30 percent more and their benefits, principally their pension, is 60 percent more. So, they're not competitive on wages, and they have to maintain these uh, 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 structures in the rural, um, over roughly 40% of the post offices that only serve 4.4% of Canadians. And then, on top of all that, they're mandated to deliver door to door delivery because the Trudeau government reversed the Harper decision on that, and that costs a huge amount of money. So, where I'm going is. With this is is that the post office is trying to reinvent itself as a parcel company, a parcel delivery company, but the rules that have been adopted by the politicians, as well as what's in the statute, actually block or prevent the post office from reinventing itself uh, as a parcel delivery company.
1: Is there a will to do that if they, if those barriers were removed?
0: Well. The former CEO who just stepped down, Deepak Chopra, and full disclosure, I met him on two separate occasions in a professional setting. I do not consult or have any relationship whatsoever with Canada Post, but I did meet him in, in downtown Ottawa. And he did set out a plan for the reinvention of Canada Post. It was in the annual report. It's not a secret plan. It's very public. And he testified before Parliament with this plan. And and he talked about the phasing out, the eventual phasing out of letters, because they're they're collapsing like a stone. Uh, two billion a year since 2006. We-
1: I think we just had a problem. Uh, we'll re- reconnect with Ian in just a couple of seconds here. Uh, he's right in the middle of a very important point here. Uh, and, and what we're talking about here is an op-ed piece that uh, was published in the Global Mail yesterday, written by Professor Ian Lee from Carleton University. Uh, about the problems with uh, Canada Post, and it's not just about contracts. It's uh, it's about an, an outdated model, really, that uh, that they seem to be dealing with right now. I think we've got Ian back now, so I don't right. know, I don't know what happened there, but here we are I back again. What, right. As you were saying,
0: yeah. So he, Deepak Chopra, had this vision to uh, reinvent Canada Post as a personal post. Company competing with the other. Let's be clear, there's no monopoly with uh, uh, with uh, parcels. That is to say, DHL, UPS, and of course, numerous regional and local city carriers in Ottawa, Calgary, Toronto, Hamilton, and so forth are out there competing. But he had this vision, and it may seem far-fetched, but. They're number one, Canada Post is number one in parcel delivery right now because they do have a couple of competitive advantages. One, their pricing of parcels is lower than the private companies. Secondly, they go to every one of those 16 million addresses. None of the private companies do. However. To bring up everyone up to date, the liberals didn't like his vision because they felt it was too narrow. That is to say, he wasn't, they claimed, going out and looking at uh, more imaginative sources of revenues, new product lines, in other words. And I think he had, in my view, because there aren't a lot of opportunities for Canada Post other than the, the e-commerce. The idea that they can go into banking, I think, is a non-starter. It's, it's absolutely silly. Uh, Cupw has advocated that, but it would cost enormous amounts to wire up every post office with high-speed data lines and retrain the workers and buy high-speed computers because every financial institution today is completely online. It's digital. So include, same with the credit unions. And. And so that's not going to happen. The, uh, there was also talk about them going and becoming a broadband high Internet provider in the rural of Canada, competing, guess what, with Bell Canada and Rogers. Well, that's a non-starter. Those companies are very big, and they're very well financed, and they are very, they've got the competencies in that area, whereas the post office doesn't. So anyways, they got rid of Deepak Chopra. They kind of pushed him out the door, and they promised to recruit a new CEO to produce a new vision. And now it's supposed to happen in the early of 2018. Um, and we're now at the end of 2018. I think the reason they didn't was because they started to, it started to dawn on them as they talked to more and more people. There really is no alternative for Canada Post except to reinvent itself as a parcel company, parcel delivery company. The problem is then they've got to admit to the public that they were, they were wrong, that, that, that that's the way to go. And I don't think they want to admit that. So I think they're really desperately looking for alternative revenue sources, but I don't think there are any, and, and Bill, I don't think they want to confront the fact that and go to the rural and say, look, we just cannot sustain 3,600 post offices in the rural uh, uh, actually, it's technically 2,900 because some in the suburbs got protected as well under that rural moratorium. So, in round numbers, round numbers, big picture, there's about 3,000 post offices in the rural serving. 4.4 percent of addresses in Canada. There's a clear need to consolidate that, and I mean by that we just can't afford that kind of cost. Doesn't mean you're eliminating them. You're just going to reorganize it with franchises and grocery stores and the you know uh, gas stations in the rural, you know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But but the government has said absolutely no way can you do that. They actually prohibited the tra- uh, pr- the franchising of urban offices, So there's no more being uh, there. They were done before, but they're not allowing new franchises to occur. And then, of course, the, the home delivery, which is unbelievably expensive compared to putting it into community mailboxes. So what this has done has tied the hands of Canada Post. They've tied the hands, the arms, the legs. Every appendage of Canada Post has been tied up so that they're really, really restricted in, in getting rid of the cost they can go into the new parcels i'm not suggesting they can't but they're carrying these legacy costs that are really brutal i mean just absolutely brutal and and so i concluded my op-ed by saying in the near future letters are going to dry up right now they're down to about half uh, about three billion dollars of their revenues I predict in the next five to seven years, because they're dropping at five to seven to ten percent a year, I said, there's not going to be any letters left. Are we really going to pay and finance as the taxpayers thousands of uh, Canada Post employees walking across all the streets of Canada five days a week, 52 weeks a year, to deliver phantom letters, letters that do not exist? to 16 million households and businesses that, do n- that no longer mail letters. In other words, almost like a, almost a make-believe or a fake post office because there's no more business to deliver to the homes. It's a different business model. That model is dying, and it will, will disappear very soon. But we're blocking the reallocation of resources from the old 19th century model to the new model of parcels. And so they're stymied. They're absolutely stymied stymied. And where this goes, this isn't theory. Next year I predict they're gonna start running up very large losses in Canada Post. And the taxpayers of Canada, that's you and me, are gonna be Subsidizing these losses in addition to paying a dollar a stamp.
1: But to that point, and I don't disagree with anything you said there, how culpable are we, the taxpayers, because we're the ones that demand that outdated methodology? We still want that door to door delivery. They got the pushback even when they yep. wanted community mailboxes, yep. let alone closing some of these, these outdated posts. You know, and, and of course, politicians who always want to get reelected respond to that outrage.
0: Bill, you are absolutely correct. Um, and I'm not trying to sugarcoat that at all. We, the people, are using the post office less and less and less and less. Five to seven to eight percent, sometimes ten percent decline a year. Two billion letters less per year are being mailed in the post office. And that figure keeps dropping like a stone. But it's up to the politicians to, I believe, and I may say the politicians, the, our leaders who are, are the cabinet ministers and the cabinet and the prime minister, to... Explain this to everyone and say, look, people, this is unsustainable. We can't go on like this because we're going to have to start spending, subsidizing with taxpayer dollars, scarce taxpayer dollars. We're going to have to start subsidizing losses that could easily run into the billions annually. There is no exaggeration there. I have taken apart the financials. I've gone through the financials. They're very public. They're audited. They're on their website. And you start looking at the costs of the component parts, you know, the rural delivery, uh, the home delivery, and it is frightfully expensive. And this is not a... I'm, some people listening may say, well, gee whiz, you know, that Lee just wants to lay everybody off. I'm not arguing that at all. First off, they, they're, they're a quite age-heavy uh, entity. Canada Post has a lot of people over 50. They can do a lot of, retri- a lot of the reductions. I mean, they can do all of the reductions according to Deepak Chopra, when he testified, through attrition, because they have a lot of older people working at the post office. So this is not about blowing up the place and laying off people like General Motors did. They can do it through downsize through attrition, and they're going to have to downsize because a parcel company does not need 60,000 employees because they're not going to 16 million addresses five days a week, 52 weeks a year. It, it, you know, the logic is inescapable. You know, letters are collapsing. Don't, you know, in the very near future, five years, seven years from now, we won't need to go to all those homes five days a week. We may have a residual post office, I mean by that, where there might be a need to go out one day a week to community mailboxes because the volumes have collapsed down to not zero, but something, you know, very close. Okay, but that's the kind of thinking we have to adopt is say, look, tomorrow we should be going to three-day-a-week delivery. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, there isn't enough justification to send to, to go five days a week as it's, it is right now today.
1: It is. Uh, Ian, I, I go to my mailbox every day, for, you know, five days a week, because when I'm walking the dogs, I, I go right past it. <laughs> and... and <laughs> maybe 2 days a week maybe 3 there's actual mail there the rest of it's just flyers
0: precisely in fact in fact i don't even get flyers 5 days a week I'm getting flyers maybe 2 days a week. I get no what I would call real mail because I 10 years or more ago I c- converted my, you know, hydro bill and my gas yeah. bill and all that stuff. Uh I'm online with my CRA filing to revenue to CRA taxes. Everything I've got. I mean, my Visa bill, my bank statement, everything is digital. Uh, and and more and more organizations and Canadians have gone that route. So I mean, I'm only getting mail, and it's junk mail at that, two days a week. And, and the numbers are, it's not just me. The numbers are showing that large numbers of Canadians have gone down that road. So, and in fact, in the blue ribbon panel, that, the task force that was appointed by Mr. Trudeau, he, they did a, um, an, a nanos survey of Canadians. And a very a surprisingly a large number of Canadians are more than willing to accept a reduction in mail delivery from five days a week. Some said three days a week, some said two days a week. But the point is, people, there's an acceptance, a broad acceptance of the need to go to a reduced delivery schedule. And then I'm arguing taper it down as the mail keeps going, uh, volumes collapse, taper it down, the, the mail delivery, so you can uh, facilitate this transformation, free up these resources so that they can put more and more resources into parcel delivery, which is the future of Canada Post. It's not envelopes, notwithstanding these uh, dear uh, uh, little old ladies I hear on, on talk radio, sometimes on CBC, including my late mother. you know. And they say, don't you understand? I completely depend on the Post Office. And that's true. There are, there are a handful. There's a small number. Sure. But let's be very, very clear. The vast majority of us do not. When I ask my students every September, how many of you use the Post Office? They start to laugh. They start to giggle. They think it's funny. They think the post office, the very idea of sending a letter, is a joke. That's what young people think. You know, I'm not talking parcels. I'm talking writing a letter. I mean, who writes a letter to their mother or father today? You send a text. You send an email. Or a snap, you send a photograph on Snapchat or, or any of the social media. You know, or you go on Facebook. You just don't write letters. We don't write letters anymore.
1: Yeah, well, I do just after I use my landline to call people, so <laughs> still <laughs> or, stuck in the 19. We use the
0: tel- telephone, actually, or we use our smartphone. We do. Exactly.
1: We do. Ian, it's a great piece. I, I, here's hoping that it lands on every MP's desk and they can read this, because, I mean, they can avoid an awful lot of future problems if they just uh, use some of the common sense that you've yeah. talked about. Thanks, as always. Great talking with you again today. Thanks very much. Thanks. Ian Lee from the uh, Sprout School of Business.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: It's getting to the point where we almost do a weekly story about uh, problems in in how we're treating our veterans, uh, wounded veterans especially. Uh, And we've had promise upon promise from uh, this government and the previous government I guess the previous government before that, too, for that matter. But, I mean, it, it really, since uh, uh, we've been talking about this over the last eight or ten years, uh, we want to think that the government is hearing and that they're going to react to this. But then we get another story like the one we've got today where it's uh, been reported that over 3,000 veterans have waited over a year for their disability claims to even be processed or reassessed by Veterans Affairs Canada. There's a jurisdictional problem going on here, by the way, with Veterans Affairs Canada, uh, and and, and that may well be part of the problem, maybe even the root of the problem. Joining us to talk about all of this is Michael Blaze, President and Founder of the Canadian Veterans Advocacy. Mike, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today
3: pleasure, I guess, to join you. I wish one time we were spoken about something
1: nice. Well, one of these days, Mike, it's going to happen, I think, but not today, obviously, because of what's going on. Why the delay with this stuff?
3: well i find it incomprehensible frankly you know i have served on several advisory boards in an effort to improve services to to streamline these forms most importantly to hire back the 400 500 600 vet or uh, workers uh, the conservatives laid off or, or got rid of you know so now we we finally get all these 475 people hired we get these forms streamlined. We have all the outreach that's uh, clearly effective. People, uh, veterans are reaching forward. And now, now we have these abhorrent waiting times that is, uh, you know, the definition of ineptitude. I mean, good Lord, you know, I mean, they knew what was coming. We were working collectively Under the understanding there were far too many veterans disenfranchised, there were far too many difficulties in the application process, and yes, that the application process was taking far too long. And yet, you know, three years into the mandate, people hired, you know, and and the numbers seem to be getting worse, not better.
1: Is I mean, it is, is it the is it the process itself? I mean, you know, the we've all been through this, Mike, and and then sadly, it's happening with the veterans here too, where it seems as if the bureaucracy is is basically set up to say no uh, until you can prove yes
3: or delay, and then you know delay deny. You know, I mean, we've we've dealt with this for years, and you know, this is another thing that reflects on the poor leadership at the bureaucratic level at Department of Affairs, Veterans Affairs. I mean, we're supposed to have a deputy minister, retired general, you know, top quality leader, who we have provided hundreds of millions of dollars over the last three years, allowed him to fire, hire 475 in a program that, that that will increase that number up to uh, to to levels required, and yet and yet we're getting these lame ass excuses from the minister. Uh, You know, in essence, uh, telling the Conservatives, well, don't be disappointed, you did worse. That's right, they did worse, and we changed it. But this government's not, not fulfilling the obligation and ensuring that the people at Veterans Affairs Canada at all levels are trained and have an expedient method of process. And frankly, you know, I mean, this happened to me last year. They called me for reassessment. You know, I have to go to, uh, to, to Hamilton to see their doctor. You know, it took over a year for that reassessment to be processed, and this is something they asked. This wasn't a voluntary application. So, you know, there are serious, serious uh, problems here. We have a minister that's more more inclined to, uh, you know, bark at the conservatives and compare willies instead of learning. And this is what's most important, learning from the failures of the conservative government. History is repeating. Why is that? Well, clearly the leadership at Veterans Affairs Canada is allowing it to repeat through ineptitude.
1: Mike, what's the disconnect here between Veterans Affairs Canada and National Defense, the Department of National Defense? Uh, it seems as if these guys are at loggerheads and, and the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing.
3: Oh, uh, you know, this is disappointing too. You know, I mean, for 10 years now, we've talked transition, transition, you know, the favorite keyword of ministers and deputy ministers. Are, oh, we're working on transition. And, you know, we've worked to ensure that those are transitioning from Department of National Defense to Veterans Affairs Canada's care is uh, seamless and expedient. And yet, and yet, you know, here we are. These, these very people, you know, identified as seriously wounded, being medically released from the armed forces, are waiting a year when they knew a year before that he was being or she was being released that, that this process needed to be undertaken? Come on, you know, you know, seamless transition means that when your paycheck starts from the Department of National Defense, your support element from Veterans Affairs Canada and your pension starts the next week. That's what seamless is. Seamless isn't in, you know, your last payday's in July and then you get another one May next year. That's not acceptable.
1: Well, and you just used the example of what happened in your particular circumstances as as where there seems to be just way too much bureaucracy here. Uh, Veterans Affairs, of course, they do their own medical exams. Uh, National Defense uh, insists that you use their doctors, which obviously means, okay, they're not going to call you on Monday and say go Tuesday. You've got to wait. Uh, and that's, that's holding up the system right there. Why can't they, why can't they look at this and say, let's do it w- one way instead of two different ways?
3: Yeah, I, listen, I'll be fair. I, I don't really think that the problems, the doctors at the military side. you know, I mean, uh, they cater to a very small community compared to a civilian doctor. Access is usually very expedient uh, compared to, you know, there's no waiting eight, nine months to see a doctor. You know, it goes quick. But, but. The problem is, is through this transitionary period where, you know, Veterans Affairs is not trusting, and this is the the root of all, they're not trusting that military doctor. They want that veteran to go see a civilian doctor or doctors when we talk about pain specialists or and things or whatever. You know, I mean, you might have to see five 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 specialists to, to confirm what that medical doctor said you know, eight, nine months prior to when you were released. So, you know, there there there's where the disconnect is. It's a lack of trust. And frankly, I find that uh, almost willful and deliberate, uh, you know, and part of the program of delay and deny. Because, you know, the military doctor is probably pro-veteran. He understands what happened. He's trying to write it down in a manner that, that defines that it was truly accredited to service. And yet, you know, we have these... Uh, doctors at Veterans Affairs Canada. I call them bureaucrat doctors because they don't actually see anyone. They just condemn us. And, you know, they they play this game. Oh, you've got to go to Toronto. Oh, you've got to go to Ottawa. Oh, you've got to go there. You've got to hither and there. That's not good enough. Send another one. You know, that's not acceptable. These are where these delays are coming. And, frankly, most of the time, it's a deliberate ploy, I believe, on behalf of Veterans Affairs Canada, you know, to keep that... That process regulated and to to their standards and not the standards that are required by people coming forward. You know, we had thirty six thousand p pe- or thirty six hundred people, or, or thirty one. Let's see, thirty one waited, o- thirty one hundred waited over a year, a year, a year. Thirty six thousand fifty. You know, I'm I'm just saying these numbers are abhorrent. I'm so disappointed after working so hard to get this money into the system to convince bureaucrats to to establish protocols that are supposed to make it easier and more beneficial on a health level for our veterans as they transition. And here we are on the radio talking about numbers that are just as bad, if not worse, than the numbers that the Auditor General in 2014 jacked up the conservative government over.
1: Is it because they don't believe these these applicants? Is that what it is? I mean, I mean what are they suggesting here? That there's somebody uh, trying to defraud the system? Uh, or-
3: well, there, there's another one. You know, I mean, veterans. It's written in in the charter of veterans' rights that we are supposed to be accorded the benefit of the doubt, and this is important because a lot of wartime and peacetime uh, injuries are incurred at a time where i 'm not going to the doctor we 're we 're engaged here, you know I mean you yeah, suck it up, buttercup, right, uh, despite the fact that that might have been a blown knee, a blown ankle, a blown spine, a blown mind right you know and and, and it 's so disingenuous that you know we work so hard, especially on mental health, going back to the auditor general's right you know i mean that 's what it was it was in reference to well, how many out of these you know thirty seven thousand people who had to wait a year we're adrift suffering a serious mental wound like this is unconscionable we understand the consequences good lord last night you know not confirmed yet but it sure looks like we've had another suicide within our community you know what's going on here that 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 should be dictating where the sense of urgency applied you know that the the need and the threat value and the, and the you know, the possibility is that this laxative very ineptitude is resulting
1: in suicide. Mike, when you've got somebody in a situation like that, and you and I have had this discussion before, if you go into an ER and you complain of chest pain, you guys rush to the front of the line, they say we gotta look after you right away because something dramatic could happen if we don't. Uh, when when somebody comes in here and starts showing symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, that same thing should happen. I mean, they should move, okay, we need to do something right now because it could be a tragic result if we let them wait. And we've seen the tragic results. When are they, When are they going to learn from this?
3: I don't know how many more dead, how many more murder, suicides. Every time it happens, it feels like someone's ripping a chunk of my heart out. Because we have worked hard. You've worked hard. All people across Canada that I know are aware of this situation, are aware of the threat, and have encouraged our government, whether through their MP or through the prime minister, to, to, to take effective steps. And you'll remember, prior to the last election, mental health was one of the big promises the prime minister of Canada today made. Oh, yeah. Along with that lifetime pension, by the way, right? And wow, listen, I'll be fair. Yes, we we've, we've committed hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, I appreciate the efforts that uh, you know the, the Mrs. Heber and the and the, the psychiatrist from ZAC is making on these efforts. But you know, we we work so hard, and then the bureaucrats get it. Once the bureaucrats get it, it's like you know throwing a rock in jello. It just. Ugh. You know, it's so disappointing because all the momentum seems to evaporate. All the urgency is gone. When, when, as you know and as I know, we have men and women who are sustaining extraordinary trauma. You know, here we are approaching the Christmas year, the most dreaded time of the year for me on that level. And, you know, all we're getting is uh, ineptitude from Veterans Affairs Canada as far as processes going and lame-ass excuses by a minister who is responsible for this mess.
1: We need to explain to our listeners too that uh, when we talk about these delays, and as you mentioned, some words it's upwards of a year. Uh, they don't get treatment until they've been assessed. Uh, so I mean, they're waiting for this, and it's not as if you guys are sitting around saying, "Well, in the meantime, uh, go and see this doctor," and, and and you know, or go and talk to this psychologist. You until they actually get a file on you, you you you're in limbo, aren't you?
3: That's right. And you know what happens then? The cycle of despair. You know, people are forced to self-medicate. You know, families are forced to to apply 100 percent care and attention to that wounded vet for fear he may take his life. I mean, can you imagine, imagine the trauma that's inflicted on that family if you're caring for your mother or father, and you're afraid to walk out of the room, or he's always depressed, or he's in pain, or she, 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 she's not the mother that you had, you know, and and nothing's going to change until she gets help. You know that, I know that, they know that, so does the wounded one know that, and yet, We have these prolonged periods wherein they feel abandoned, they are adrift, many times they succumb to addictions from whatever form, many times by the time that help is provided, that family unit has been destroyed, or requires years of intensive therapy to bring it back to the point it was, you know, prior to the injury. So, you know, I mean, this urgency is lacking, you know, and it's a damn shame.
1: I know the numbers have gone up, you know the numbers have gone up, but uh, to, to, let's be fair here, the ministry knew the numbers were going to go up. I mean we know there's been a 32% increase in applications, 60% jump in the number of first-time disability benefits since 2015, but that was to be anticipated and as you said Mike, this government said we see this happening, we're going to make sure that we hire those people back. So it's, it's not as if this caught them off guard.
3: No, and you know this is what bugs me about, you know, the deputy minister, the general, right, he knew what was coming, You know, it's his responsibility to ensure these people are hired and that they're properly trained. You know, we just don't hire them and throw them in the front line. There's an extensive period of training there that's required because we're dealing with veterans who have sustained complex, sometimes physical and or mental trauma. And, you know, I mean, they knew. This is what galls me so much. I mean, in the military, when you knew, when that general knew what was coming, he damn well had the resources, the professional acumen required, and the incentive to do the mission on time and on target, as we say in the military. And, you know, this is what I find so disappointing about... About the current deputy minister, I admire him as a general, I have great time for him for his service, but frankly, he's proving to be a very poor deputy minister. And what is required now is a professional lifetime bureaucrat that knows how to apply and hire resources, how to train them in an expedient manner, and how to clean up this mess.
1: It's not as if they have a de- any lack of, of, of de- detail and information here. I mean, folks like yourself, Mike, and, and some of your contributors that have been working on this, uh, Gary Walburn, of course, who's been a, a, a oh, advocate yeah. for this uh, uh, for the longest time. I mean, the advice and the information that the ministry needs to make this right is right there in front of them.
3: Oh, and it's been provided ad infinitum. I attend these, you know, policy advisory group, mental health advisory group, so on the, the service delivery group just got back from the big uh, Veterans Summit, a two-day event in Ottawa a couple of weeks back. You know, I mean, yes, yes, my friend, it has been provided, and in great detail. They know exactly how to fix it. They're just not willing to embrace the proposals because either – it costs too much, or their doctors who are, you know, stuck in the Stone Age, dinosaur doctors at Veterans Affairs, don't believe in that, that form of treatment, despite its success.
1: Well, and, and I know that more complex cases take longer to diagnose, etc., but, I mean, the resources are available, and, and, and all they're asking, I guess, is for a level playing field, and, and they don't seem to be able to supply that.
3: No, and, and, you know, I mean, more so galling, again, how much money have we put into that department? You know, this is not a matter of uh, neglect as far as resources uh, in in the sense of cash. No, it's a a matter of ineptitude. We provided all the information they need. We provided the money they need to make it happen. We've allowed them to hire back all these people. Well... If all those uh, requis- requisites are fulfilled and it's still failing, clearly the failure is at leadership, at the ministerial, and the deputy minister level. Yeah, you, not competent enough to apply these resources in an expedient manner and fix this problem.
1: You don't just throw money at a problem. You try to fix the the system within. And and if you, they, because I, I know they dedicated forty two million dollars to try to deal with this uh, backlog, yeah. but if it's still not working, that means there's a systemic problem, and that's what they got to start being honest about that.
3: Yeah, you know, I, I had a chance to engage the minister of finance when I was standing on the hill with my little sign. Uh, Last time I was up, he goes, Mike, Mike, come on, you know, we're, we're committed so many millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, and I'm going, I'm so grateful for it, but it's not being applied correctly. There are problems on its application wherein you're getting nothing out of it, Minister. People are unhappy. We're not happy with the lifetime. We're not happy with the delay times. All those promises that were in the mandate are, are 40 cents on the dollar, just like the lifetime pension. Yeah, you addressed it, but you didn't address it well.
1: Mike Blaze, uh, President and Founder of the Canadian Veterans Advocacy. Keep uh, fighting the good fight, Mike, and uh, we'll be right behind you and supporting whatever way we can.
3: Well, Bill, thank you. And thank you to Murray Brewster for digging this out, and Glory Galloway, and so many other people in the media who, who are bringing this to the national attention. Because, frankly, without you, they went. You know, if if, if if nobody knows how deplorable the conditions are, nobody will do anything about it, and our veterans will still continue to suffer. So don't forget, Justin Trudeau at parl.gc.ca. Tell them what you think about it. You know, your, leader, your your listeners can embrace the sacred obligation right now. Just copy that down and write a letter to them say, I'm not happy the way you're treating veterans. I don't like the way you're breaking your promises. Fix it by the next election or you're out. <laughs>
1: Mike, thanks again. We'll talk again soon, I know. God bless you. Take care. Mike Blaze. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.